Welcome to the Inquire Capitalism podcast, where we ask scholars and archivists about business records. The Inquire Capitalism program at the University of Florida is directed by Professor of History Sean Adams and funded by the Hyatt and C.C. Brown Chair in the History of Capitalism. The program organizes research in progress talks, roundtables, and an internship that seeks to develop a database of corporate archives for researchers to find av available corporate heritage either on the web or in physical archives. Professor Son Adams joins us today. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, your host, and we are interviewing today Dr. Susie Pack, Associate Professor in the Department of History at St. John's University, and uh, she specializes in the study of American business networks and uh, And with us, uh, she will be talking a little bit about her book, Gentleman, Gentleman Bankers, The World of J.P. Morgan, uh, published in two 2013 by Harvard University Press. She conducted research at the J.P. Morgan Archives. Uh, she'll talk about this, and uh, she'll, she also did research on social registers at the New York public library, which uh, she will also talk about. And uh, we want to know more about this experience and how how Susie Park did it. And we welcome you to the program. Welcome. Great. Thank you, Paula. Um, I want to thank you for you and Sean for having me. Um, I guess I'll just explain a little bit about what the background of the book was. Um, so um, I guess one thing I would I would say is that, you know, all all histories start with a question. And the question that I had for gentlemen bankers was what is the basis of trust? And uh, what I mean by that was what is the basis of trust within the private banking community in New York before the Second World War? Um, one of the things that I noticed from my research, and this book came out of my dissertation, um, where I was studying actually U.S. foreign policy in East Asia, Um, at the time, when you looked at private American bankers who were financing countries like um, Japan's expansion into uh, China, um, and also ostensibly supposed to be uh, funding China's development of railroads um, after the end of the Qing Dynasty, one of the things that I noticed is that there was a mix of uh, bankers, of course, in terms of international background, but also ethno-religious background, Um, and the two groups that I was quite interested in were um, basically white Anglo-Saxon Protestant bankers like the Morrigans and also German-American Jewish bankers like Kumo and Company. And what really interested me, because I actually went to graduate school to study American race relations, is that is how, if and how these two um, banking communities, uh, kind of represented by these two top banks in these communities, Uh, were able to work together in a business that was so personal um, and that could not be operated at arm's length as something like private investment banking um, that was dominated by banks that were, by tradition, um, unlimited liability private partnerships and usually family banking partnerships. And so I thought in the context of anti-Semitism, how do these two banks work together? Do they work together? That was one of the first things that I wanted to test. We know that um, uh, Morgan historian uh, Vincent Caruso, who knew more about the Morgans uh, than probably anyone alive at the time, and, and he wrote extensively in the 70s, uh, 80s, 
um, about the bank said that they did work together, that they had this kind of level of trust. Um, and I, my, the question that kind of um, drove the book was, how do you build trust in the context of anti-Semitism? And um, that's what led me to try and understand the structure of their, the community and also the nature of their relationships. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your first um, visit to the archive? What you know? How did you um, how did you know where to go? <laughs> oh, that's a well. The in the case of the Morgans. Um, really with any project, of course you start with the secondary literature, right? So the Morgans were a bank that had been written about before. And so um, uh, luckily we had examples from other scholars like Carozo. Um, Gene Strauss did a wonderful biography of J.P. Morgan called Morgan American Financier. Um, uh, Carozo did a giant volume called Morgan uh, Private International um, American International Bankers. I can't remember the exact secondary title. Um, Barry Supple did one um, an article actually um, about uh, German Jewish bankers. And so this is one of the ways that I identified the archives. I also did a lot of research, for example, at the American Jewish Archives, where um, the Schiff's papers are kept, and also that of his son Mortimer and son-in-law, Felix Warburg, and that was a, a wonderful experience. So, um, I, of course, you know, Morgan, the Morgan, uh, I guess it, it's now called the Pierpont Morgan Library and Museum, um, holds the papers of really the family. Um, and then, of course, J.P. Morgan Chase has its own corporate archive. But um, in the period that I studied the bank, which is before the Second World War, the bank is still really, uh, well, the bank is a, a private partnership. And um, it slowly over time became less of a, a family bank, right? So where all the members of the, all the partners are not necessarily related to one another, but it kind of operated uh, that way, um, particularly as long as Jack Morgan was still alive and he dies in 1943. Um, and the bank doesn't become a corporation until 1940. And so the, all the records that the partners have, including the papers of the family, which are held at um, the Morgan Library Museum, are totally relevant to the study of the bank as a bank, if, if that makes sense. Because in this time period, the bank and the family are really, um, um, I wouldn't say that they're indistinguishable, but they're highly integrated, put it that way. So did you find um, with that really interesting and kind of unique uh, um, intermingling of, of, of family and business in that period, at least, I mean, it's not all that rare, obviously, in the early um, 19th century, in the early period of American business, business history. But um, did you find that uh, more challenging to kind of untangle what was family and, and what was business or... Um, did it take a, a, a long kind of familiarity with, with the letter writers and, and the documents and, and the archives to kind of be able to sort that out? Uh, in other words, how, how much of a kind of shock was it um, and how, how long did it take for you to get familiar with that kind of system? Well, you know, in terms of like what is the difference between business and family, um, 
I didn't really have any problems with that. And I think part of it is because um, I just expected it. I mean, they come out of a merchant banking tradition. Um, when you're unlimited liability, you're, you're, all of your assets are on the line. Your personal assets are on the line. And so you're going to be very highly selective about the people that you do work with. Um, and so it makes sense that you start with your family because you have to vet people, you have to vet people, you have to be able to monitor them and you really have to trust them. Um, the thing that I would say is, you know, that the idea about the distinction between um, personal and business networks really is actually at the center of the book, because um, the if, if you were to look at a traditional answer to the question, why is it or how is it? How is really the issue? How is it that uh, WASP bankers and German Jewish bankers were able to work together in the context of anti-Semitism? The, the, the standard answer is that people would just say it's money, right? That, that it was profitable and that's why they work together, right? So um, I think it was Ace Greenberg of Bear Stearns who said, you know, I think this and I think this was like in the 80s or the 90s. Um, he said, you know, like, I don't, I don't see color kind of thing. He was like, everyone's green, right? It's all about like, you know, profit and making, making money. Um, but when I, knowing, for example, that the Jewish bankers, particularly Jacob Schiff, Jacob Schiff was very proudly Jewish. And he would not have worked with anyone who is openly anti-Semitic because reputation was so important to the bank and to work with someone who denigrated you on the basis of your um, uh, who you were was just impossible, right? And so that was one thing. The other thing too is that when you do, as you say, it takes a lot of time. You know, you're reading through papers, and you just read, you just read and read and read for a period of like months and years. You begin to see how personal their relationships are. So when the partners write to each other. And, and we assume that they're talking to each other as if they're only talking to each other and that a historian's not going to come and read their papers after 100 years, right? So they're being honest with each other. We believe them. They talk about love. They talk about care. I love you. How are you? They inquire about each other. There's this emotion there in their relationships. They really care about each other. And they have this in their community. So the question is, in a business that is very personal, how do you create trust in the context of racism, right? And so the answer cannot be money because there were situations where the shift said, no, I'm not working with that person because of, he's known to be anti-Semitic. And I talk about this in the book. Or the Morgans say, we're not working with that person because they are X, Y, and Z. Right. So that's how I knew that the business side and the social side were integrated. The question is, um, to what extent and how does that actually impact things like the flow of capital, like the selection of clients? You know what I mean? Like those kinds of questions. Um, and so uh, but the idea that these two things were integrated, the idea that banking is embedded in its society is absolutely fundamental to the book. It kind of starts there. Right. What other sources besides um, correspondence between between bankers tell you that? Tell you about that, those emotions? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Paula. So one major source that I looked at that I want to say actually does make gentlemen bankers unique 
is the syndicate books of J.P. Morgan and Company. And there's also a set of syndicate books, by the way, there of Drexel Morgan and Company, which was the predecessor to J.P. Morgan and Company um, of sorts. Um, basically, when Drexel and Morgan was around, it was when Junius Morgan was still alive, who was, was Pierpont Morgan's father. He was really the kind of founder of the bank. Um, and it's not until he dies and Anthony Drexel dies that J.P. Morgan uh, reorganizes the firm and creates J.P. Morgan and Company. So there are these two set of books. I'm talking primarily about the second set. And there are these syndicate books that are in the library. And the way that I found them um, is an example of how when you get into an archive, you just have to talk. I'm a kind I'm a, you could tell I talk a lot. I'm a very chatty person. And um, I'm always talking to people about, I'm just kind of interested and curious in people. And, uh, and then I talk a lot about my research. And so, you know, I had probably been going to the Morgan for years. I mean, I, I still talk to him and friends with the archivist. That's how long I've been researching that. Um, and uh, they knew what I was working on. And I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm almost positive um, it was Maria Molestina who is the head of the, uh, the uh, reading room today, who mentioned these syndicate books. And I said, what are they? And she's like, let me bring them up. And so she brings them up and she shows me this book. It's a massive book. So I'm small. I'm not tall. And so in order for me to read this book, um, it's kind of like not exactly the wingspan of my arms, but it's big. And it's probably about, I don't know, a foot and a half thick. And in order for me to read it, I had to stand at the table to read it. And um, I opened it up and I looked at it and there's 11, I believe there's either 11 or 12 of them. And um, they're handwritten mostly and they're kind of typed in pages that are stuffed in the middle. That's why it's so bulky. Um, and basically when I looked at it, I said, oh, it's a deal book. It lists all the syndicates that the Morgans had been um, a part of basically since like 1894. And these included syndicates that other people had included them in that were not managed by the Morgans and the ones that the Morgans managed and included other people, right? And so when I started looking at this document, what I noticed is that, uh, you know, so the nature of syndicates is that um, you cannot, as one bank, no matter how wealthy you are, take on all the risk of one deal. Impossible. You're, remember, you're unlimited liability, right? Your client goes down, you go down, it's game over. So you have to basically spread the risk. And so how do you spread your risk is you, you share it with your friends, right? And so um, if you have very good friends then they t and you're, they're really reliable and you trust them, they tend to work with you a lot, right? And so you would see them repeated in deal after deal after deal. If you had some friends who were mo more you know, closer to the client, then maybe you would only see them in deals related to the client, something like that, right? And the idea being that the more participation that you had in a Morgan deal, probably the closer you are, there's a way to measure the strength and the longevity of your relationship. So around this time, I had been doing a lot of reading social network analysis. And I looked at this deal book and I said, oh, this is like a friendship network, right? It's like the Facebook of the bank, right? But it's not presented to you in any way that you can analyze it unless you translate it and recode it. And that's what I had to do. And so, um, so to give you an idea of uh, what 
it looked like on the left-hand side, there would be a description of the deal. On the right-hand side, it would list all of the participants. So like, for example, for the U.S. Steel deal in 1901, it listed all the people who with their participations in descending order. And the people who got the most were at the top and the people who got the least were on the bottom. And you knew in some cases, there's a deal, for example, for JIK Threshing Company, um, if it was a really good deal, because there would be in that deal, there was called a private list. So let's say out of like $8 million, the Morgans keep $1 million for themselves, right? They, they, give, they, they give the rest out. They're making money on the spread, right? So, um, but they keep some for themselves. And then in the private list, they have a list of their friends. And it could be literally like their children, their wives. That's how, right? So that gives you a sense. I said, oh, this, this gives you a sense of who their network is. But in order to really know what their network is, you have to do the, in all the books, right? You can't just pick and choose because you have to contextualize um, each individual person. And that was a process that took me about three years to, to code where I went through every single deal and I translated it into this Excel file that really I kind of made up as I went along. And at one point I presented my results to the Columbia Economic History Seminar. I'm, I'm one of the co-chairs now because I was like, okay. And you know, I would present it basically places and say, does this sound crazy? Because literally it was something I just made up because it made sense to me because what I knew what I was trying to do was to look at their friendship network, their syndicate network. And I, and I was like, okay, so if it's a commercial bank, they're going to have more money than a private bank. So we have to code them differently. That gets a column. If they're an individual versus a insurance company, that's going to be different too. So they had to be coded by affiliation, you know, that kind of thing. Then I said, let's say you did a lot of business with the Morgans in 1900, but you didn't do any business with them in 1920. That could be something might have happened there. And in fact, in the book, I talk about how Spire and company at a certain point just falls off. They, just, they, they don't get any participations at all. And you can actually see that in the Excel file. It's remarkable. And it matched this correspondence that I had in uh, that I found actually of the Morgan Bank of the, you know, because they had a British branch, which is now part of Deutsche Bank because Deutsche Bank bought out Morgan Grenfell and company. And that was the original actually American Bank in Britain. Um, but some of the papers before, I think, 1921 are actually at Guild Hall. So I went to look at there and they had these letterpress books. And in one of the letterpress books, they talk about we've been, uh, I don't think they use the word betrayed, but it's basically like we've, we've been betrayed by the spires. And after that point, they just don't get any participations at all. Before that point, you actually see more participations from them than you do Kun Lo. So I spent literally two and a half years, three years translating these books with no guarantee that I was ever going to actually figure something out, but I just knew it had to be done. And the goal was to see at how good a friend was Kuhn Loban Company, this main Jewish bank, German Jewish bank, to the Morgans. Carozo says they were really good friends and they did a lot of work together, right? But Carozo's papers are actually at the Morgan. Um, so he left his papers to the Morgan. And when I looked at his papers and he's looking at the syndicate books, he had these yellow pads that he hand wrote deals on, right? Because he doesn't have Excel at this point. He doesn't have social network analysis and, 
and UCINet, you know. So part of what I had to do is I had to um, study social network analysis uh, with a great group of people at Carnegie Mellon, at the Quesos Institute. Then I took a, another workshop at the University of Essex in the summer with uh, Martin Everett and Steve Borgatti um, and Dan Halgen and Rich DeJordi. And I kind of figured out how I could use the technology to study the syndicate books and then I had to actually go and code it. And it was probably one of the most painful things I've ever done in my life. Um, but it's just one of those things that you sign up for when you're a historian. And in the end, in the book, you just see like one little, like maybe three little tables. But those tables um, are backed up by that work. So when I say to you that it's not money that, that, that led the Morgans to work with Kun Lo, that if you look at the average uh, amount of profit that they made on a deal with Kun Loeb and compared it to all the deals that they did in this period of 40 years, um, I'm going to tell you that it was lower, right? Um, and if, you, if I said um, that they were consistently over time, that the reason why they may actually made money together is they did a lot of work together. And you can see that because every time, what, what the coding entailed is that every time you showed up on one of those lines in the syndicate book, you, you got your own little Excel page. And I would code the big deal, right? Um, and then I would put down what the deal was for, how much participation you got in the year on your page. And if you kept showing up on deals, your page just got longer. Right. And basically the way that I broke it down is that each um, letter of the alphabet got its own page. So I had, you know, like whatever, 20 something um, Excel files. And then I had to go back and add everything up at the end. You know, it's like, however, 2000 participants and then go put it back on the main page, basically. And then I had to separate it out by year. It was just one of the most painful things you could possibly ever do. Uh, but, you know, in, in the end, it, it, it was worth it because I was able to answer the questions that I wanted. The, the thing is, the first, the first year, it took, it, it took me a year to code the first book because I had to do it by hand in the library. And, um, the, and then I went and presented it at a quantitative methods uh, seminar at Columbia. And um, uh, run by uh, a guy named Chris Weiss, who's, who's great. And one of the master students said to me, that's when the master student said to me, uh, I will never forget her. And she said, how do you know it's not because of the profits? And I was like, Ugh. so I had to go back and recode the whole first book because of course she was right. This is why you present, right, to people. So I had to go back and recode the whole first, that took me like a year. Meanwhile, I'm on the tenure clock. And I was like, this is very unwise tenure clock behavior, uh, but it had to be done because I couldn't answer the question of the book without actually coding these books. But then after the first year, you know, the Morgan took pity on me and they allowed me to photograph the books. And the one advantage of that, of course, is that now they, they, there is a photographic record. They've actually since then taken all the books, taken it apart and scanned them professionally. Um, so they will, as far, as far as I understand, they're going to be available to the public, um, though we have to double check that with the archivist, but they were scanned. It, it, and it was a process that took a very long time. So 
if you were happened to be working on the Morgans in that period, there was a period when the Renzo piano um, uh, uh, renovation was going on. And I was like, man, if I had been working on my dissertation while the renovation was going on, then the library was closed, I would have really been in trouble. But um, they allowed me to photograph the books and just photographing the books, it was like 16,000 photos. It took me like a month. It took me one basically month in the summer. But by then I could actually look at them. Um, at a certain point, the iPad came out and it like saved my life because I could look at them and just kind of zoom in as I was coding into my computer, um, literally thousands of pages and people. Um, but in the end, uh, I was able to kind of answer the question. I mean, I was able not to answer the question of trust that took something else. There was a whole other process that involved mapping and learning ArcGIS and all this other stuff that I talk about in the book. But I was able to ask the question of whether or not they did work together. And the answer was yes. Uh, oh, well, I was just going to say that's that's a really fascinating um, blend of kind of qualitative and quantitative analysis that you had to do and, and the kind of organization that's involved. So I guess I would ask, um, as someone who's also, you know, kind of skirted that, that, that boundary between the two, um, did you find yourself uh, having to kind of uh, simultaneously act as a historian trying to figure out these human relationships? You know, uh, to anti-Semitism is not something that's necessarily easily quantifiable. I mean, it's something that that you're going to see in the in, in the written record. Um, but at the same time, you're also trying to kind of figure out these kind of business relationships, which means a lot of counting and a lot of organization and a lot of kind of putting that stuff together. Um, did you uh, find yourself doing that kind of analysis simultaneously or was it a, a, an issue of kind of well, let's let's crunch the numbers, see what we have, and then I will put my historian hat back on and try to figure out the kind of human angle uh, on this. Because it seems like there's a there's a really strong, you know, uh, the, the the way that you've described this collection, the way you described the the way that Morgan did business, it, it's very personal, and 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 you really need to be a historian who kind of has an understanding and a sensitivity to how humans work and how humans kind of think in in, in the context of their times. Yeah. I mean, it really was simultaneous, you know, there was, there were, I mean, towards the end, there were days, there was one summer I remember where I was kind of coding for hours, like just hours. And the story that I always tell about this is when I was done, people were like, yay, aren't you happy? You finished? And I was like, no, I feel, I, I feel ill. I feel ill that I put myself through this, that I did this to myself. And for a long time after that, I actually teamed up with one of my colleagues, Yana Diesner at the University of Illinois in Champaign, because I was like, Yana, let's do data mining. Let's figure out how to mine data, you know, through an algorithm so we don't have to do genealogies. And of course, in the end, I found out you have to just do genealogies. I mean, this project that I'm doing right now on the history of my university, I can't even tell you, I've literally... This just this spring, I looked up 1400 genealogies, you know, so um, but in any case, so it was always simultaneous, you know, because I think that that's a really important thing for people to know about being a historian is that you kind of have to wear a lot of different hats at the same time. And you really have to be an advocate for yourself all the time. I mean, you're just hustling, you're just asking questions and finding materials. And it's like you got to do whatever it takes to to 
to um, get the evidence and, and, and find the answers. And a lot of times that involves, you know, asking people for help, you know. And so um, one example about the social um, networks, for example. I, so if you measure social net, if you measure economic networks, that's much easier to do. Right. Because you have like the amount of the deals and you have some kind of number you could put on. How do you measure a social network? That's the, was the question. Right. So um, the way that I went about it, it was like this. It was like, OK, so you have family ties. Um, and the other thing that you have over time, though, is that the bank, particularly the Morgans, mo- earlier, for example, than the Jewish bank, is that um, the Morgans start to incorporate partners who are not family members fairly early on. Right. And the question that I had is, how do you maintain that kind of uh, trust that you would have in a family as you do in a bank than you do with someone who is not related to you? And the way what I argue in the book is that they do this through common associations. So you see people who went to the same university, for example. Right. So they went to Harvard, went to Yale. There was a pencil. There was a, a Pennsylvania branch and, and um, UPenn was a big commonality among the partners in the British side. You know, you had like Eton and Oxbridge and this kind of thing. It's even stronger, I would say, in, in um, uh, Great Britain or in a place like Boston. So I did comparative banks, too. I looked at like he, Lee Higginson and company. I want to say until fairly, you know, well into the 20th century, like 100% of their partners went to Harvard. You know, so you you build these associations through schools. But you you the other thing that I noticed is that um, when you look at their obituaries, right? Obituaries are wonderful documents. Is that they until about 1960 they would always end with a list of the partners' clubs, and I was like, that's interesting, right? And so I started looking at a, a, a source called the Social Register which again is kind of like a Facebook for rich people in, in the past. And the social register was, it was actually very selective. You had to know, it was like a club. You had to know somebody in order to get listed in the social register. You you needed to be recommended. And then there were social registers for different cities. And so what I did is I said, okay, let's look at the social register membership of the partners, but the partners, and then I did, other banks that were comparable to the Morgans to get, you know, because you can't just look at the Morgans or the Kuhn Loeb. You've got to look at other banks as well. And so I would, li- do you, there is no one place that I know of in America that has all the social registers of every city for every year in one place. So I would literally be like, one day I'd be coding at the Morgan. The next day I'd be on the train to Philadelphia, to the Philadelphia Historical Society to look at the Philadelphia social registers. The next day I might be in the New York Society Library because they had a volume that the New York Public Library, somebody like eight, basically, or the Columbia Library, Butler Library, because, you know, I had to like basically hustle to get access to all these different libraries, even in the city. So it's a very peripatetic life in a way. Like I'm always reading on the subway, you know, not now, of course, because of COVID, but I'd be working on the subway, going from library to library, gathering, taking photos of all these different social registers, building a picture of their network. And when I started doing that, I also started noticing their addresses. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. 
they seem to be living close to each other. And so I started collecting their addresses and I said, um, let me figure out this ArcGIS thing. So I did, took a class in ArcGIS and I said, what do we, if we map them and see where they lived? And that became actually a huge part of the book where I start to map the German Jewish bankers and where they lived. And I marked and I mapped the Morgan bankers and where they lived. And that really actually became the key to how I figured out the answer to the main question of the book. So the thing is, is that's why I started with the question, because it's always you always go back to what it is, the question. You can't just randomly research one institution. Right. There's too much to look at. What are you what's driving you? And so everything that I did was driven by this idea to try and understand if these guys actually work together and how, what were the, what was the circumstances in which they could build trust? And, and what the book argues is that, in fact, one of the ways that they did it, that they were able to work together, is that they kept their personal lives totally separate from their place of work. And I show that when I map the distance between downtown and uptown right but um that it it, i I guess i should say as a historian one of the best things about our job is it's kind of all-encompassing and one of the worst things about our job is also it never ends right like we're actually just never on vacation we're just always thinking about our project uh and in fact i can't remember the last time i went on vacation to not work at some library somewhere while I was on vacation or, you know, like give a paper or something like that. But, you know, it's, it's a blessing if you love what you do. Yeah. I think that, I think that we all can agree with that, that just the thinking about our environment. um, We're always trying to give answers to it. Um, I think this is wonderful. One thing that I want to to point out is how many different um, digital tools you use. Um, and this was a decade ago um, to to produce your book. And that I think is is impressive. Um, GIS, uh, social network analysis. Um, I believe now. Um, global historians and transnational historians are using this more often to, to map and to, and to see all these relations. But um, I, I am so happy uh, you came here to tell us about this. So I'm gonna, we're going to have to end here. And um, I um, thank you very, very much, Dr. Pak. This has been really great. Um, for those listening, I invite you to look for our previous episode on our website, uh, www.inquirecapitalism.class.ufl.edu and also please email us at inquirecapitalism at history.ufl.edu to be included in our email list and receive announcements about next episodes and updates on the database of corporate archives and more. Um, thank you so, so much, um, Susie for joining us today. Thank you. Absolutely. It was, it was a lot of fun. I, I love to complain about my work. That's the only way I can describe it. No, I, I, it was, it was a lot of fun. I can, I literally have a lecture where I could probably talk for four hours where I describe all of the research that went into the book. Um, I particularly love the one about maps 
because now I can show people and, and I do this. I have a quantitative methods class at St. John's where I show the graduate students kind of how I did. I walk them through the process of, of it. And and now you can just do it online. You can do it on ArcGIS. You can do it on Esri.com. It's it's fantastic. You could actually even do it through Google Maps now. because And when you download, um, if you go to NYPL, they have a map division and they have actually geocoded old maps of New York and actually maps from all over the place. But if you download them into Google Maps, you can you will overlay um, and uh, on a contemporary map and you can you can pinpoint the latitude and longitude of different locations. Um, I literally I, I describe how I did this in the book and it was so much more complicated and now you can do it so easily and for free um, if you are looking at a topic that's before a certain time period you know if the the, the files are available so um, but yeah I love talking about the process of research um, uh, and and also about the kind of collaboration that historians do with archivists because the work that they do in safeguarding the archives is so critical to the work that we do in trying to understand uh, the past. So thanks for having me. I agree. Thank you. And thanks for coming.